all aboard. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to a classic episode of the Film Stage Show, usually the movie review podcast for thefilmstage.com. Today we are going to do one of our classic episodes brought to you by our fine Patreon subscribers at patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow. I am joined, of course, by Michael Snydell. Hello. And Bill Graham. Woo! And today... Or should I say, choo-choo? <laughs> oh, Christ, no. Oh, <laughs> it begins. Anyway, today we are talking about a true classic. This is the 2010 Tony Scott film, Unstoppable. The swan song. Yeah. And what a what a great swan song, in all honesty. Like, you know, yeah. great fucking movie. Anyway. We're going to talk about it. We were excited. We haven't done one of these in a while. Sorry. And uh, we were like, what's something we could talk about that's fun? It's going to get us pumped. It's going to be something we're going to want to talk about. And I, after months of joking about it, convinced us that Unstoppable is actually a good idea. And uh, here we are. So we're going to talk about Unstoppable. In case this is your first time listening to a classic episode, be forewarned. These are spoiler-filled podcasts. None of this spoiler section nonsense. We're not holding your hand. We're not putting bumpers on. We're going to come right out and say it. Just not right now. Um, Statute of Limitations (laughs) is kind of up on this one, let's be honest. I mean, yeah, pretty much. (laughs) I assume anyone who is super eager to see Unstoppable has seen it already. Um, Before we get into that, though, of course, all the normal stuff. Find us on Twitter at Film Stage Show. Facebook, search for The Film Stage Show. Email us, podcast at thefilmstage.com. Become a Patreon subscriber to help us produce extra episodes like this one by going to patreon.com slash thefilmstageshow. And, of course, we are brought to you by Mubi, the online streaming cinema where every day their curators bring you a brand new film to enjoy for 30 days That means you always have 30 great films to check out some of the stuff they've got going on right now because it's beginning of the year festival season. They've got their Berlin Isle takeover as well as their Sundance takeover going on. The film of the day today is from Austria, 2016, Brothers of the Night. Soft boys by day, kings by night. The film follows young Bulgarian Roma who come to Vienna looking for freedom and a quick buck. They sell their bodies as if it's all they had. What comforts them so far from home is the feeling of being together. But the nights are long and unpredictable. That is just one of the many interesting foreign films that they currently have coming out from their Berlin Isle Takeover series. And as I said, they've got great stuff coming all the time. So go to Mubi, check it out. You can get a free 30-day trial by going to mubi.com slash filmstage, and you will get a free 30-day trial on us. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. And, uh, yeah, that's about it. Nothing else to catch up on. We were just in your ears a couple days ago with our Cold Pursuit discussion review and our uh, discussion of Liam Neeson's interview and cancel culture. Hope you all enjoyed that. Remember when we used to do, like, two roundtables a month? 
Yeah, that was uh, that was a different time. <laughs> those are crazy times. Those are times before I had a child. That's what those times were. <laughs> yes. Anyway, we are here now to do one of our classic reviews. This again is Unstoppable, 2010 movie from director Tony Scott, starring Chris Pine, Denzel Washington, and uh, damn, I thought I had his name pulled up. Anyway, it's also got Rosario Dawson. It's got Kevin Dunn, Ethan Supley, Kevin Corrigan, and yes. uh, I can't find the name of my favorite character. Where are you? There he is. It's Lou Temple as Ned. <laughs> the guy in the pickup. Yeah, the guy in the pickup with the, the oh, leather yes. jacket. <laughs> leather duster. Yeah. Oh, my God. That guy fucking rules. His ponytail is magnificent. It's oh. all about precision. It's a, Look, it, whether you're overseas or you're right here, it's all about precision. <laughs> you know, I was having this discussion with my girlfriend the other day. Has there ever been a hero or a, a like lead actor hero with a ponytail besides St- Steven Seagal? <laughs> I was going to say Steven Seagal, but besides no. him though. There's got to be. <laughs> right. Wait, what Ponytails about are always evil? What about uh, Last of the Mohicans? Did Daniel Day-Lewis ever put his hair in a ponytail? I feel like he should have for, like, combat reasons, but I feel like also maybe hair ties wasn't wasn't a thing back then, so... I don't know. I feel like that was, like, a historical historical thing, because I just got done watching Outlander, and everyone kind of has their hair in that in that way. Yeah. I'm not talking about, like, pins. I'm talking about, like, a... Like a no, like a scrunchies ribbon or something. Kind of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, like okay. I don't think scrunchies were a thing back then. So <laughs> I, don't I think, think so. I think when you were, when you were battling, what, what is it? The, the French, like back then, I think, uh, you, you had other priorities. Well, if it was, but yeah, if it's the Scottish, you're probably fighting the English. Like, yes. Okay. Uh, and I just think, I don't know, like maybe, maybe long hair, is is not a good thing to have when you're when you're doing battle. I just think maybe that's uh that's something that you maybe the Mohicans had had some ideas there, you know? I'm a I, I'm just saying I, it's a modern code though for henchmen and like baddies. Like you don't <laughs> you don't get a lot of big actors these days doing a role with a ponytail. No, that's true. I, I could have sworn that Colin Farrell wore his hair in a ponytail at some point during the New World, but I think I am wrong. Wait, I mean, the, the, the only vice is the one? only person I really think of with like long hair right now in contemporary culture is Thor, but he definitely doesn't put his hair in like a ponytail at <laughs> no. any point. So, like, besides him, I can't think of anybody with like. I mean, Keanu's getting close right now yeah okay they could definitely put that into the john the next john wick film yeah he could pull it off i am interesting i don't know if he wears a ponytail in miami vice i I, for some reason i'm i don't know this is gonna have to be the next round table (laughs) the next yeah the next round table is just gonna be like what male actors have worn ponytails while portraying a good guy (laughs) i don't know because colin farrell has like especially in like the new world in Miami vice. He's got like, kind of like greasy hair that he mm-hmm. seems to be able to just force backwards. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He anyway, we're here work. to talk about unstoppable. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
are we? Yeah, this movie, um, based on a true story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which um, I have seen this movie so many times, and I don't think I really realized that. Which is like just my fault, I guess, for being so pumped for Unstoppable every time that I turn it on <laughs> that I just never noticed the thing. I um, so basically, it's about a train that uh, through a series of unfortunate events is uh, let loose on the track, unmanned and under power. And not, just a, not just a train. Uh, oh, this is true. We're not talking about a train. <laughs> We're talking about a missile the size of the Chrysler building. Oh, yes, no. indeed. Yes, indeed. In fact, uh, I'm going to endeavor anytime I'm talking about 777, the call sign of the missile the size of the Chrysler building, I'm not going to call it a train. I'm going to call it the missile the size of the Chrysler building. Or you could call it a jackpot. Yeah, because it's 777. Now, yeah, yeah. so this is one of the interesting things. So anyway, it's about the train gets loose and then these two guys, these two mismatched characters decide that they're going to run it down and try to stop it before it like wipes out a city. Um, I thought like, you know, it's kind of funny that it's like just 777 because like that's usually a good luck thing or like a heaven thing and that's a good subversion. The actual train that was involved in the incident it's it's a csx 8888 hmm. Hmm. so like they they took that basically like they're like well we can't use the exact same one but we can definitely get close and this also helps us out did you did you do any re- i meant to do some research on the actual oh buddy I- did i do some research okay nice. well Uh, more or less how much is this the story (laughs) it's super fucking close really (laughs) yeah so i looked it up on wikipedia and then did some like independent uh newspaper googling just to make sure that everything was like right but so like here it is the engineer so like this is how this is how it starts so there's a string of 47 freight cars 22 of which are loaded there are only two tank cars that contain molten phenol Okay. Instead of however many were on the the triple seven, I think it's but, only like four. It's right, not so super like they high. doubled it, but like it's still it's the exact same thing. And mm. there's an engineer, a 35 year veteran, with a clean disciplinary record, who noticed a misaligned switch and concluded that his train, although moving slowly, would not be able to stop short of it. So he decided to climb down, correct, correctly align the switch, and reboard the locomotive. So like. Aside from the fact that Ethan Soupley plays a dick, <laughs> a dick who's only eclipsed by T.J. Miller, who also plays an asshole, mm-hmm. like, th- that's how it happened. Like, I- every time I've watched this movie, I'm like, this is a f- the insane amount of things to go wrong. Sure. But, like, it happened. And it happened pretty much the same way. Because well, now, like, before it, leaving it, the cab, go ahead. the engineer applied the independent air brake. Now, here's a difference. He thinks the air brake is connected. But it actually wasn't. Mm. In the movie, Ethan Soupley's like, yeah, I don't need no fucking air brake. <laughs> so this guy was just like, there was some bad luck. Now, applying the locomotive's brakes, because he did set the brakes, uh-huh. disabled the train's dead man switch, which would have otherwise applied the train brakes and cut power to the engine. Oh. So the engineer attempted to apply the dynamic brake to slow the train to a crawl. But the the way dynamic brakes work, and this is, again, something I had to research to make sure it was all right. They dissipate the kinetic energy momentum by using it to drive the generator. So, like, how a hybrid car will use, like, mm-hmm. the, the power of the braking to charge its end, uh, its uh, battery. Mm-hmm. 
And so <laughs> what happens is he does that. He sets the throttle and the dynamic brakes had been engaged, but the throttle and everything else and all the other braking kind of made them just not work. Hmm. So the only functioning brake was the air brake and that was not connected. Wow. Like it's insane. Okay. So, 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 and, so hold on. So, so review real quick. Was he kind of a fat out of sl- shape slob or was he just like like uh, what i don't understand because like even in uh, like watching it again like i'm just like go fucking hop on the train and then move from car to car like i don't care if you're like several cars behind but just like get on the train so at least like someone has control of the car eventually i did wonder this so this is this is what i think is like one of the um one of the things that the movie does in order for us to like kind of get over the initial like series of bad things that happen is that they mm-hmm. make um the character who is played by Ethan Sloopley whose name is I think Dewey yeah so yeah, Dewey yeah. is a Fuck is an Dewey. idiot Dewey yes. sucks now the engineer in the uh 8888 situation mm-hmm. he actually he climbed down from the cab aligned the switch and then attempted to reboard the accelerating locomotive he was actually dragged for 80 feet and wow. had to be taken to the hospital. And okay. he is shockingly the only injury to result from this entire incident in real really? life. Really? Oh, wow. yeah. So that helicopter uh, Navy or the person who was back from the Iraq war, that was uh, that was, I think, a, a thing that was added. Now, okay. they did now, attempt to. I, I noticed that. The... Go ahead, Bill. I, I was going to say, because. My girlfriend was sitting there while we were watching it. She had never seen it before. And I was like, you got to watch this with me. It's only an hour and a half. We'll, we'll get through this together. And uh, she doesn't like like tense movies. So this movie was kind of doing a number on her. <laughs> but uh, oh, it was Bell. funny. Yeah, I know. I, know. <laughs> I, I, I was holding her hand the whole time. <laughs> um, but it was funny because like she kept on yelling – like she's very vocal when she watches things at home. Um, and she was yelling like, get the fucking TV camera or helicopter away. Like, what are they doing? Like it gets, they're so, so close, close so, so close so many times. And then there's like multiple TV camera or helicopters around. And then at one point, like it looks like they get so close that you're just like, why doesn't like one of the pilots just be like, Hey, let me go like, stop this thing. I'm just going to jump. Yeah. I'm just going to jump right here. Like, like it's like 10 feet away. Like I'm, I'm, but again, they already sort of tried that with the, uh, the other guy and it did not work. Sure. In the movie they do. But yeah, like, like, so, (laughs) but I was just like, wow. Okay. So just to complete the, uh, the run through of the actual incident, because I found this fascinating. So once again, just like Dewey in the movie, he didn't actually like fully engage the dynamic break. So everything's going bad. And because the throttle is fully up because he thought the dynamic break was engaged, it starts to go. He gets hurt. They attempted to derail the train using portable derailers and it failed. Now this is the craziest part because the part of the movie that I've always been like, they just needed gunfire for like a trailer or something. 
is when the, the police attempt yeah. to shoot the fuel cutoff switch. I was like, uh-huh. what? With, okay. with fucking bullets. And my girlfriend was like, why didn't they just shoot it with paintball or, or something? And yeah, like, I assume I, that I, it would be, impact. Yeah. I assume the paintball wouldn't have enough kinetic energy well, to push like, the thing. But so that happened. They have other things. <laughs> like, they have other things that they can shoot besides just like paintballs. Like, they have, uh, what, what is it? Like, the, the bean bags sh- and. Yeah, bean bags and Slugs. all sorts of shit. But yeah. so, in in That's reality, so the police did attempt to shoot the emergency fuel cutoff switch, and they all got fired. And it had no <laughs> effect because the button must be pressed for several seconds before the engine is starved of fuel and shuts down. Really? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So, so nobody told them. This. <laughs> so here's the yeah. other crazy thing because I was like, you know, it's in the movie. Like you've got these two guys who are just like you know you know, odd couple and they're having a day and then they're like, you know what? Fuck it. We're going to do this. That actually happened as well. A northbound freight train was directed onto a siding where the crew uncoupled its locomotive, um, eight, three, two, nine, two, and waited for the runaway train to pass. Uh, the, the, the eight, three, nine, two had a crew of two, uh, Jess Knowlton, an engineer with 31 years of service and Terry L. Forson, a conductor with one year's experience. So, is is he is his uncle related to the company? In the I don't way that think it is so. In the, okay, I think Did that, he have so that's, the restraining order. <laughs> I don't. I don't know about that either. Damn it, Brian! <laughs> so, this is the important thing. <laughs> so together they chased the one away, the runaway train, um, and then there was another run, or there was another locomotive that was prepared further down the line in case they couldn't do it. Um, but they successfully coupled onto the rear car and slowed the train by applying the dynamic brakes on the chase locomotive. Once the runaway had slowed to 11 miles per hour, CSX train master uh, John Hosfeld ran alongside the train, climbed aboard, and shut down the engine. This all happened in Ohio, by the way, not Pennsylvania. Interesting. Um, the interesting thing is that all of the brake shoes on 888 had been destroyed by the heat from being applied through the entire trip. Mm. So, like... Again, the, there there was some brakes applied, but because the throttle was all the way up in notch eight, it just destroyed them. <laughs> mm-hmm. it just ran right through them. Yeah, but yeah, so that's a this is like you know, it's funny because I I only thought about it after watching the film this most recent time, which was today. This is the type of thing like that we would get like a sully out of nowadays. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Sure, and I wonder if it's because. This incident happened in um, 2001 for, like, the dawn of the internet when, like, we can learn about, you know, quote-unquote local disasters like this. Sure. Instantly. That this was uh, just kind of been like, yeah, you know, let's give it to Tony Scott. Let's make it a kick-ass action movie. Like, let's not turn it into, like, Sully or the 1517 to Paris or something. There are some similarities between those two, though. I I mean, Sully was something I was going to mention later when we when we get into this i mean i think this you know as much as to like talk about this a little bit like as much as tony scott you know he is known at you know for a certain like stylized very uh you know emotionally bold action but he's also someone who's obsessed with details Mm -hmm. and like that that is something that over and over in this movie 
like I was just amazed by how much care he was putting into not only visual storytelling, but just making dialogue just enough so the layman can understand it, but also where you very much have to watch and like uh, keep up. And, and I like I think that's so impressive and and that's weird to say because it, it's it, this could be such a potentially boring story and I'm glad they gussy it up a little bit yeah they punched it obviously. up obviously but it, like it, it was so strange to me that those you know that we're talking so much about how real this is because this doesn't even work in the same like exaggeration way we talk about a lot of these like based on a true story rescue action things like it it just doesn't have that that like realm of fantasy like there's so much like grounded like blue collar appreciation oh my god i wanted yeah that's something that i want to bring up like for sure so First of all, Tony Scott is is was a great director. Um, I mean, just fantastic. And what you said about his attention to like details is so true because like if you remember, he he like revels in the fact that like a small thing that only an expert would know can like sure. save the day. So like even in Crimson Tide, which is another, I'm just gonna lay, plant the flag. Another movie that we will one day talk about as a classic episode. Yeah. Don't don't spoil it for me. Don't spoil it. For I won't me. spoil I gotta, any I gotta, of the. I gotta the, get to it. I, I won't spoil I like anything except more, to say that, like a little more than this one, but like yeah, they're both very similar films. Oddly, yeah, it's got a real appreciation for like you gotta. You got to fix a thing. You got to know this one thing in order to do it. And so like in Crimson Tide, a lot of it comes down to like getting a radio to work. (laughs) Like for all of like the the sweaty like gun cocking and everything, it's like what we really need is just to like figure out how to fix this fucking radio so we can get the emergency action message that we thought we were getting to know whether we're at war or not. It's like – and in this movie, it's it's a lot of that, and it's a lot of like love for the people on the ground and pure hatred. Like this movie has like a hard on <laughs> for hating like the capitalist machinery that puts people's lives in danger. For sure, <laughs> like Kevin Dunn. <laughs> Kevin Dunn, who is great in this movie, he has yeah, he's, um he's very good. He has many great scenes of being like the shitty guy at the top, but he's not even at the top. The guy at the top is the guy who's on the golf course. <laughs> taking the call on his cell phone while his friends like fail to make a putt and he's just Multiple like times yeah <laughs> he's just like you know what's the what's the potential loss of stock you know like what's our stock devaluation like it could be as high as 30 to 40 percent and he's like ah let's go with galvin's idea and then he hangs up and goes back to golfing because this guy doesn't give a shit he's not living in like sure you know steel city pennsylvania he's out on the mm-hmm. links like yep. a capitalist fat cat it's also really impressive – sorry, just that you mentioned the small city. The small city they go through right before – oh, my. Of course I didn't write it down. What, what is the city that is highly popular? Stanton. 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 Okay, the city yep. right before that, though, they make sure to talk about how it's evacuated. They, like, make sure to talk about what people are doing. And obviously it's really weird seeing people with, like, their phones <laughs> right by the train tracks. <laughs> But there is still, sure. there is still like a general like empathy here that's just not present. And you know, even like Peter Burke is someone who kind of does some stories like this. When you think of uh, like, but he especially emphasizes the 
heroism. Like, you know, in something like uh, a Deepwater Horizon or, um, oh my God, why can't I remember any of the military? Patriot. <laughs> oh, yes. I, I, I was thinking modern military. Uh, I guess the kingdom is him. I, I, either way, my point being, though, is that Peter Berg is like working. The Mark Wahlberg movie. Lone Survivor. Yes, thank the, you. The, the Mark Wahlberg movie, which <laughs> yeah. is all of them. <laughs> and like, you know, that he works in some of this kind of like, in some kind of this uh, blue collar appreciation, like heroism, like this like very Hoxian love of like duty and like men of action. But like, even he doesn't seem to have like the level of empathy and like deep, deep respect for everyone involved. You know, like even seeing like even how they play um, when their good friend dies trying mm-hmm. to uh, trying to topple over the train. And we'd only previously seen him in one scene, you know, where he's just kind of he's given Chris Pine's character some shit. But like even still the way that it cuts to all the people watching it on TV, the mm-hmm. way it cuts to other people being like, what I you know, like I think Rosario Dawson's like, I told him not to do this or, you know, it, and just the way that that works is unlike, I don't know. There's like, a, a, you know, the filmmakers who do that can count on one hand these days. And that's what really stuck out to me in this film. I, I think I think there's just like a day to day minutia as well. That's kind of appreciated when like Rosario Dawson I don't know why I said that so weird. Rosario <laughs> Do- Rosario Dawson calls uh what is his name? Ken? Ned. Ned. Ned calls Ned and by the end of the conversation like you can tell Ned is like kind of stalling for time to like check out and like and like get his ticket and and get the fuck out of the door cuz he doesn't know what kind of emergency is quite on his hands yet. Sure. But at the end of that phone call, she's like, I can always uh, depend on him being late. Yeah. So she was she was counting on the fact that he would be ahead of the train sure. because he wouldn't be where he was supposed to be. <laughs> and it's just like, yes, this guy's always fucking late. Awesome. He's where he, I want him to be right now, you know, and it's just yeah. like, wow. And and even that, you know, ultimately doesn't end up being anything. But but sure. it, it's just it's just those little kind of details that you're just like, that is really smart. Like, wh- why did she call him? I, I don't know. Right. She's and just like, who end, who's probably yeah. down the line? Oh, I know sure. Ned, because Ned is probably chatting up that waitress he likes. Mm-hmm. And the way that Ned changes modes as soon as he hears it's a it's a coaster, I think, is that scene. Yeah, they right? call it a coaster. And he just changes modes immediately, and he, you know he wasn't unlikable before that, but he was a bit of a he's a bit of a doofus trying to chat up that waitress. But like, but then he fishtails out of that parking lot, exactly. baby. Oh hell yeah, he fishtails out of the parking lot and into our hearts. Well, and, and the yeah. other the other great part about this is like when he goes to I think one of the cops, one of like the state police, who's like on duty, like like trying to shut down like a crossing or whatever and he's like he shows him his his badge and he's like you're just a welder and he's like look man i work for this company it's like i'm more than just a welder right now sure and then he's like connie sent me and the guy's like whoa connie sent you and then like yeah. six police cars follow him yeah it's great it's great 
Yeah, that's a great moment. Well, because again, like it's it's one of those things where this is train country. You know, they've obviously got loading yards, and the train like literally like goes down what appear to be almost streets in some of these cities. Mm-hmm. And um, you got to imagine that like you know, <laughs> the police have a very close relationship with Connie, who is working in like the hub to keep yeah, everything absolutely. moving safely. Yep. Yep. Well, yeah, I think that's one of the reasons too. The setting of Pennsylvania helps a lot. Like not having this, in, you know, mostly take place in a major metropolitan city or something adds a very different, uh, you know, obviously a visual texture as you're talking about as it's going across the streets. But it also like it it doesn't it doesn't feel as gross almost because it's not like oh millions are gonna die right like the, there's sure. trains that run through dc and i can imagine like you know sure. a movie that'd be all right so like what if like this insane thing happened in washington dc and the president's daughter's on board yeah sure yeah yeah well, i think i think what's nice as well is connie's first idea is let's derail it as fast as we can so that it doesn't hurt like at, in a non-populous area. Right. And I don't think that little small detail of like, let's just fucking knock this thing off its rails before it gets any further would have been something that they could kind of set up in a, in a believable manner. If it was just like, Oh, it's just outside of Chicago. It's like, uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh yeah. It's like, okay, well, you know, Pennsylvania. Sure. You know, it, most people think of like one central city when they think of Pennsylvania. So it's like, yeah, that, that place is big. A lot of rural cities. Okay. Makes sense. Right. And, um, I want to bring this up because I think that like, it's, it's crazy how this movie treats its characters so well. And, and not just in like making them nice or likable, but in like, the way that it observes so many things that, like, have only been really, like, called out in the culture nowadays. So, like, Connie is a woman of color who has, you know, a moderate, like, managerial position in this company. And she is getting shat on from the top and the bottom by a bunch of horrible white men. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, she she comes in and is like... You know, Dewey, you idiot, like the train is under full power and like, you got to go and like try to catch it and stop it. And they leave and they're like, God, she's like such a bitch. Like what a ball buster. It's like you let a, tr- a missile the size of the Chrysler building <laughs> jackpot get out of the yard and it's on the rails now. Like, don't be a dick. You made a mistake. <laughs> and then you've got Galvin who's like. Listen, Missy, like this is like that. I'm going to pretend you didn't say that for the sake of your job, even though it's the most reasonable course of action. Mm-hmm. And it's like the only people who like listen to her are Ned, who she clearly has like a more close working relationship with. Um, the guys that she's working with, Kevin Corrigan, who is just always amazing. And um it's all it and and the policeman like it's all like the low level like white collar or blue collar people who are just like yeah i'm here to do a job and i want to do it well like i'm not trying to save my reputation i'm not trying to do nothing i'm i'm getting this done and that's all like perfectly encapsulated in the part the part in the movie where denzel washington is like i'm gonna like turn around or i'm gonna back up real fast and catch this train and galvin's like you know, you're going to, you're going to risk your life like for us. And he's like, I'm not doing it for you. Not for you. 
It's just like, mm-hmm. yeah, you're fucking not Denzel Washington. You're doing it because it's the right thing to do and you want to save people. Mm-hmm. God, this movie rules. <laughs> and and they did a lot of this stuff like, you know, you can you can see and you can kind of feel the texture of it. But a lot of this stuff is shot in camera. They did a lot of this stuff, uh, you know, very practically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's pretty impressive. Sure. I, I was watching just briefly. Uh, the other night when I watched it on Monday night, um, some of the special features on on the film, and it was pretty impressive the amount of special features they have kind of showing the background and just showing the research that that Tony did and then brought to the rest of the crew, um, whether it was the writer uh, or, you know, um, Denzel and Chris Pine and everybody else. Um, he really kind of gave a lot of information and he apparently is just like a research hound. Like he loves that kind of stuff. And so once he got his hands on this script, um, he was just like, Oh, let's, let's do like a lot more research than even what you've (laughs) already done. And so, yeah, but I mean, thankfully the writer, uh, seemed pretty involved in it as well. And he was like, oh, man, I learned so much more than what I had known when I first wrote this, you know? So I, I think, like, too, I, I think it has to, had to be said. I don't mean to rain on the parade, but but it's it is a little bit weird. This comes the year after his uh, remake of Taking a Pelham 123, which does, in fact, also take place on a train. <laughs> but, like also lacks so much of what makes this movie what what it is it's just it's really interesting to me that they come and I, I don't mean to you know i don't want to speculate why exactly that is but rather because you know there's different writers there's a different creative team but nonetheless just just the fact i find this really interesting um in terms of just what you want to say about the trajectory of his career, like when it comes to, you know, his, the end of his career, it was uh, unstoppable taking a Pelham one, two, three and uh deja vu, which, Oh man, deja vu was great too. <laughs> that was but, about to say, um, <laughs> don't you dare say anything bad about deja vu. Uh, but like, it's, it is just surprising to me that those two movies come from the same director because it, it is it, taking a poem one two three besides having a, a handful performance from john travolta have either of you seen that remake i did not know yeah no. it's it's a rough but I, I guess what i wanted to say about it is like you know it's um oh my god what was i going to say about it oh it all right. Related to what actually Bill was saying is that it feels very much like a Hollywood blockbuster. And that's what I think is really interesting about Unstoppable without even talking about, you know, it being a hell of a lot of fun to watch is that like Unstoppable is technically a blockbuster. <laughs> like when you when you start thinking about the big stars, when you start thinking about the budget, when you Tony Scott is certainly someone who has some cachet. But it doesn't it doesn't operate like a, a regular blockbuster. Like it's interesting you were talking about special effects bill because there are, you know, there are a couple sequences that are a little bit more 
epic, but I couldn't help but notice that, like, for instance, the most camera work is this, like, hypnotic sequence in the cabin where it just does this, like, swiveling rotation around um, Denzel and Chris Pine in the cabin mm-hmm. as they're just talking towards the end. And that's, like, the most camera movement in the entire movie. Is that like, the that's... um? Is that the scene when Chris Pine's, like, elucidating on why he has a restraining order? Yes. Yes, I yes. love that scene. <laughs> But it's it's lovely. Yeah, like, it one. does. It, it keeps jumping back and forth between like just uh, uh, medium shots, but then just does this swivel back and forth, and it it it's just really interesting to me. Honestly, coming into I would I had never seen this before, and I had been the one who was uh, <laughs> skeptical when this was recommended, uh, despite Scott's reputation, but that. This is the thing that was so surprising to me is uh, just how much uh, this isn't just some dumb action movie about a train that never stops. Like, <laughs> like, like it, it's impossible to get past that the, the log line for this movie feels like a gag. <laughs> like, it's just like it's an end point. It, it doesn't feel like there is um, – it doesn't seem like it would lend itself to a movie of this level of humanity or, or this level of like procedure or, or what I'm getting at. And so I, I don't quite know what to say about that, but please jump off. If so I, I took notes while I was, uh, I was, I was doing, I was watching this movie again for like, you know, the 500th time in my life and the second time in the past month or so. Um, and one of the things I noted, you know, aside from like, the the kind of blue collar heroes and like a, a weird kind of um appreciation for the fact that like a lot of the people going through this have also been like overseas with like the military and like the mm-hmm. just the kind of the kind of reality of that like i know a lot of guys in texas who are working in like oil and gas fields who like were in the military first and mm-hmm. there's just like a truth and a reality to that of like it's not, and it does, it doesn't even like inform their characters in the way that it would if it were a movie like about veterans, but just the mm. truth of like, yeah, like veterans come back and then they go to work again, mm-hmm. and um, but specifically what I loved was the fact that like Chris Pine and Denzel Washington don't become a part of the the story about the the missile the size of the Chrysler Building <laughs> until like really close to the end of this movie. Yeah, like mm-hmm. they're aware of it, but it's like a problem that could happen to them. Like no one is like they don't hear about it and immediately go like, "We've got to stop this thing." Um, you know, they're they're like, "Oh, we got to get off on the rip track." Sure, and we've got to like just try to save ourselves, and that allows for so much character building that is unrelated to the stress of the situation, and. Yeah. Well- even the situation itself takes so long to escalate to the point that people are like really starting to freak out that like yes, you yes. still get a lot of character building from other people. Sure. Mm-hmm. Cuz there is that period of time where they're like, well, it's just a coaster. It'll be fine. Well, okay, maybe it won't be fine. Eh, well, you know, at least it missed the children. Like I feel like a really terrible movie would keep the children for like the final climactic scene. And yes. I remember when I saw the trailer for this movie it was like there's a train. It's a runaway. It's, we're not talking about a train. We're talking about a missile the size of the Chrysler building. But that's not all. And then it shows all the kids on the train. And I was just like, this movie is the dumbest thing I've ever seen. Yeah. But, like, the kids get out of harm's way super quickly. 
Yes. Mm-hmm. And never truly feel in danger, but it's just showing like the amount of stuff that these people have to deal with just to make way for like the actual final showdown to begin. Mm-hmm. I, well, I think you alluded to this a little bit earlier, Brian, but like you were saying, you know, you were talking about how Rosario Dawson's character, for instance, like there are certain characters she obviously deals with on a daily basis. But I think like a- another way, yeah, another way to like reinforce that is like, you know, when there's not disasters, there's a lot of things that Rosario Dawson's character has to do. Mm-hmm. It might be less stressful and there might not be quite the same urgency, but there's just as much um, importance in, you know, rerouting trains. Yeah. Uh, you know, not not just to crash, but just in general to make things on time. Like well, you even get that great bit with Denzel Washington uh, where um, I, I mean, it's. It's very much a cliche because it's the old timer testing, you know, the green guy to see if he knows his shit and he does make a mistake. But it is also something that like just shows that as someone who's been working on trains for decades, he knows how to run a tight ship. Like he knows what to do to get there on time. Right, he's he's like, do we have any like slow rolls? I think is what it's called. And Chris Pine's like, no. And he's like. They'd be marked in red. And Chris Pine's like, I know they're not there. <laughs> and I love, I love how he, he's able to tell that they have too many cars because he like knows how far the mile marker is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like that's the type of like, I, whenever I park in front of my house, I know that if I line up my, my wing mirror with a specific tree on the street, then I'm like in the perfect parking spot for like not blocking my own walkway up to my house. And it's just like little little pieces like that where he's not like, you know, there's a computer system or like, I just know you fucked up. He's like checking back and he's like, oh, you son of a bitch. (laughs) (laughs) And I do. I love that he's not even like he he just wants everything to go well. Like he he's clearly like not totally into the fact that Coulson is like his partner for the day and that he's like the young buck who's coming in with a rookie salary to take his job. Even though Coulson doesn't know that. I also like the fact that Coulson is super unaware of how much of a problem he is for the old timers. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Yeah, like you said, he's he's just a man who knows what he's doing. And he's like, you know, if someone's going to take my job, this is an important job and I want to make sure they're doing it well. Sure. Yeah, th- there doesn't seem to be a lot of antagonism. And of course, you know, Coulson doesn't doesn't get out of his own way by, you know, constantly being on the phone. And, and you know, he could just kind of say hey i have some important calls i'm waiting on a trial or something like that but you know it, it just just as what a lot of coworkers do, do they don't communicate and so when like little things start adding up it's like hey man get off the phone and it's like i need to be on the phone and it's like well why didn't you tell me that you know it's yeah. like well i don't know like <laughs> and to that end what Michael was saying about the scene, you know, where the camera's like moving. I, w- I think it's – no, clearly this is a Tony Scott movie. It's got fast-moving trains. Like, sure. there's going to be a lot of editing. There's going to be a lot of cool camera angles. But, like, the scene that always strikes me as the most dynamic is the one where Will Coulson finally tells Frank everything that's going on in his life. Yeah. And it's this weird mixture of Chris Pine's performance of, like, he doesn't want to tell the story because it's – super embarrassing like he knows that he fucked up he knows it makes him come off poorly 
But, you know, if he could die trying to stop the strain, so why not? And so it's him slumped over, like, telling this super embarrassing but also, like, life-shattering story of his. And he's, like, interrupted by Connie calling and having to have, like, a brief, like, side conversation with Frank. That's actually germane to, like, the plot. So it's still keeping the flow of the action going, even as we're getting more character. And... Like when he when he says the part about how he's going to like shout at this cop who he thinks is like hitting on his wife and he's got a gun on his dashboard. Yep. Like the movie treats it when De- Denzel Washington goes like whoa, and it like cuts away again to show like the train speeding and everything because it knows yeah. that like you need a break. It's like in a in a uh, in a Marvel movie when like someone gets punched and thrown against a building and then the like action will cut to another part of the battlefield and then it will come back to show that person finally standing up and it's just like he's such an active participant in that conversation and that conversation is given the kind of kinetic dynamic filmmaking treatment that you would usually it would just be like you know alternating back and forth or like maybe a two shot and instead it's like such an important and visually distinctive aspect of the movie it's so goddamn mm-hmm. good. <laughs> I think that's real notable too, in the sense that, like, as you were saying, Brian, like he did do something. It's it's not like it's a misunderstanding. No, he did something, and and I think that does make it more more powerful. That it's not like he has to tell the story, and it's like, oh, you misunderstood him the whole time. <laughs> like there right. is something. There's something all the more powerful in the fact that he's willing to be like sometimes. I'm not a, a good person, and this is a moment where I feel like I'm going to tell you about this. Like, yeah, I, I, but yeah, you're completely right about cutting to the to the train in the middle. That's a that's a real great decision. Yeah, it's um, yeah, that whole like I could I could probably like do an entire like semester on just that scene. Just be like, now <laughs> let's anatomy of a scene. <laughs> like we we cut here to the helicopter that's following them because like we need to be kept aware of where all these chess pieces are and we only get it during the moments in the conversation where you want to give it a second to land like it's just it's really good filmmaking that again like we've said repeatedly about this movie and i think about scott in general is so much more about like the characters and how they're responding to the situation and how the situation is forming them than just the situation itself i mean even top gun like the biggest hurdle that Maverick has to clear in Top Gun is the death of his best friend. Not in combat, but because of a freak accident that is caused by, like, jet wash causing an engine to, like, burn out. And, like, that's what he has to bounce back from. Like, that's the the moment in the movie that tests him the most. It's, like, all a crisis of confidence and of trying to, like, find himself. And that movie clearly has more of, like, an 80s... This guy fucking rules. He's just got to get out of his own way. (laughs) But like, it still has that like concept of you as a person are the thing that is driving the action. And we have to like really spend time and invest in that if any of this is going to mean anything. I feel like Man on Fire was really good at that too. Man on Fire is so good. (laughs) With a a story that could very easily, you know, slip into – you know, either treacly or feel really cheap. Like that's mm-hmm. another one where like his, his emotions for 
Is that Dakota Fanning? Yeah, yeah. I think that's Dakota Fanning. Like, make that make that violence like all the more felt like uh, there's just something uh, there's just something about yeah as you're saying about that uh, approach like it's not just uh character motivated but it's it, it's also clear care in you know the characters before the actions uh, uh, yeah. right because in in man and fire man and fire man on fire is similar in its pacing to unstoppable in that, yeah. like, it knows you have to take so much time with these characters. Like, think about the number of things that Man on Fire has to do before it will allow PETA to be kidnapped. Like, he's got to go to the place. He's got to, like, sort of become friends with the mom. He's got to help PETA with her homework. And then he has to go through, like, a full-on training montage to help her become better at swimming. He's got to, like, do everything yeah. And then only once you've grounded that so hard is it like, okay, now we're going to take the girl and now you're going to understand why this is like th- the only thing that matters in his life. It's and they're so not good. afraid to show that he's close, like uh, close to her in, yeah. in that. Like it's not just a, a job for him. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's how he feeds his family, but it is also someone who he's – grown close to i mean yeah it's that's why when it when she's like you know i don't want to do this stupid piano lesson he's like all right all you got to do is like burp every two minutes and it's going <laughs> to offend every sensibility this guy has and he's going to kick you and he's just, he's not going to want you like that's the kind of advice you give to like a friend like if it was just like a, a charge like if, it, if she was just a girl that he was like babysitting he'd be like just shut up and do what your mom tells you god like why are you being like this and in this this movie, I think it it does a lot of the same. You know, it gives these characters so much time to listen to each other and respond to each other, and it even it even gives moments for the characters to like admit to the fact that they're go like growing to like each other. Like Connie, at some point after after the guys are basically like "fuck you, Galvin," we're gonna do this anyway. She hangs up and she's like, "I'm really starting to like these guys." <laughs> I, I think she has a great moment too with Werner, uh, with Werner, Werner. I can't remember Kevin Corrigan's character because she's like, you know, especially when he's doing calculations uh, about how they're not supposed to do full throttle. They're supposed mm-hmm. to do I can't remember the language they use, but like I, even that breaking, yes, dynamic. Yeah, break. you got to alternate Thank the you, dynamic Mel. break with accelerating in the opposite direction. Mm-hmm. You two have seen these, this movie too many damn times. <laughs> Again, I saw this movie like four hours ago too. So, but anyways, like that scene is something where Denzel like sincerely asks, and he's like, uh, he's asking Connie, you know, does this guy know what he's doing? And and she's like, well, in a perfect world, yes, but like, I would trust him. And and it's like this interesting, like moderate. Level of a level of rapport they've like developed just being around her in mm-hmm. this crisis that like doesn't feel too much, but also it's clear that she does feel some level of even if it's just intellectual respect at having him uh, by her side at that moment. Yeah, because he shows up and he's like, "I'm here to lecture the kids like that are coming later today." And she's like, "Okay, fine, great, go over there." And then he knows because he's the like a safety inspector, so he yes. knows what molten phenol is. He knows how many crossings there are. You know, he's he's helping her out. And um, 
again, it's one of those moments where you're like, yeah, these two people are now totally on each other's side because they know that they're working towards like a fixed shared goal. Mm-hmm. And on, you know, he's, he's a safety inspector. His, his duty isn't to the railroad company. It's to the people. And that's kind of what it all comes down to in this movie is that like the people who are working for people are, are the good guys and the people who care about themselves more than everyone else around. Like it's a, it's a weird kind of morality that is doubly reflected by the fact that this movie ends with like freeze frames and like, you know, a little punchy things that are like, you know, Frank was given his job back, you know, and is now happily retired with full benefits you know, Will and his wife, you know, are still happily married. Second child on the way. And then yes. even, even Ryan Scott, <laughs> Ryan Scott, the name that we heard once before, the guy who got lowered in the helicopter, who just got back from Afghanistan, he gets an end card. And he's fine. <laughs> because, and again, this is what we're talking about with like the care and humanity in this movie. This movie gives a shit about this character who was in the film for five minutes only to fail. And the last time we see him, he is hanging limp from a helicopter, but it's still, and I think rightly says, I think that the people are going to want to know what's up with this guy. Sure. And it's like a little bit cheesy and goofy, but I really do love it because as Michael said, like most directors today would be like, you know, who gives a shit if that guy's dead or alive? He's not important anymore. I do wonder why Ned didn't get a card. <laughs> I will say Dewey's is a little cruel. <laughs> it's a little cruel. But again, like they, like I said, they built up how much of a piece of shit Dewey is. Yeah, I think uh, that was the only one where I'm like, oh. Yeah, you didn't really need to say like, he's working fast food now. <laughs> yeah. Though it does yeah. perfectly set up the sequel. <laughs> <laughs> Something about a Burger King fry cooker that gets too hot. Um, oh my! But yeah, we don't we don't learn about Ned. We don't get to know what uh, what happens to Ned. <laughs> I assume that it's just because like we all know Ned's gonna be fine. Because at the end, when there's a press conference, for some goddamn reason, <laughs> Ned is the one who's in charge of it. Oh <laughs> yeah. Up until yeah, the point yeah. that like I guess a corporate lawyer steps in and is like, "Thank you, Ned. I'll take that question." <laughs> yep. <laughs> I also want to I want to just ask is this the most realistic local TV news coverage in any movie ever? Mm, I still think they show more uh, I wrote something down I'm trying to figure out the exact scene. There was one scene where I'm like oh no it wasn't they show more. Some of their editorializing in terms of the copy was a little like I don't know about that. Okay. What do you think, Bill? I mean, I, I think it's pretty good stuff. Because uh, usually I, it's... I, you can agree. The, the, these movies, whenever they have a local news, it, it usually sucks. Yeah, they're real bad. <laughs> sure. So, like, the part that I... The, the part that made me write that down in my notes was when um, the police are shooting. And then it, like, cuts to a policeman being interviewed. And he's like, you know, uh, you know, we, we wanted to try to hit the emergency stop switch. We fired some rounds. So, yes, there was some gunfire. And then it cuts to the perfect female newscaster's voice saying, like, you know, uh, the this, this switch is a mighty small target. 
and it's right next to a fuel tank. And like, <laughs> they have the B-roll of the switch and then panning over to the fuel tank. And I was just That's like, right. holy <laughs> shit, that is so perfect. That is exactly how that would go. Mm-hmm. And the cutting in of the news to keep us surprised of everything is done really well. I, this is. is a movie that could feel very overwhelming, again, because it cares so much about detail. But I think that it does like a real interesting and a real like canny job of like passing out information and then just reminding people of like what's going on. Yeah. I'm looking up the editors right now, seeing if they're, they're familiar. Bill, since you're the only other person on this podcast who's seen this movie before, (laughs) did you see it in Mm -hmm. theaters? Uh, no, no, I I saw it at home. Um, me too. I, yeah, I, I think, I think, I don't think Chris Pine was quite popping at that time. And so, and Denzel, Denzel makes, he went on a run there for a little while where he was just making a bunch of shit. Um, <laughs> and it was kind of hard to keep track and like figure out like which one was worth watching and which one was kind of skippable. Mm-hmm. Nowadays, more so. Uh, he's got a lot, a lot more. Although I, I've heard people enjoy the, uh, what is it, the Exterminator or whatever? The, oh, the Equalizer? The Equalizer. Um, but, like, I can't be bothered to watch any of those fucking movies. Like, I'm sorry. Uh, him as an action hero right now at, at his age, I'm like, nah. But we still, uh, we still go for Liam Neeson, you know? Yeah, but L- Liam Neeson actually does his own stunts, and that's no... no uh, well, it looks like he does a lot of his stunts, <laughs> even still. And that's no slight on Denzel, but I don't think Denzel is doing his own stunts. Like, I, just, I'm not sure, but I will say it's a crazy stat that in his entire career, Denzel Washington has only made one sequel. And it is the Equalizer 2. What wow. the fuck? Wow. He really likes Fuqua. I mean, Fuqua's... I, li- I like Fuqua. I won't say he's great, but I, I enjoyed, like, what? Tears of the Sun. I enjoyed his... Uh, mm. Tears of the Sun is fucking excellent. He did Training Day. How about his King Arthur? He a fan of his I King did not Arthur. see his King Arthur. <laughs> Remind me, is he the one who did White House Down? Or Olympus mm. Has Fallen or whatever the fuck it was? No, that... I don't remember. I know Roland yeah, I Emmerich did one, and then I thought Fuqua yeah. did the other. It, it might be. Well, well I mean, Michael looks that up. Olympus has fallen. Okay, he did do Olympus and has fallen. I did find out something interesting about the editing that was actually worth looking up. So this is edited by two people, um, a regular and uh, a not regular, uh, Robert Duffy, who is actually primarily known for music videos and Tarsum Singh movies. Really? Uh-huh. Yeah. Wow. That is interesting. Yeah. To give you an idea of where uh, Chris Pine was at this point, he had been in some TV. He had been a, a person in Princess Diaries 2, A Royal Engagement. Mm-hmm. And then in uh, 2006, he was in Just My Luck, which is, I guess, the Lindsay Lohan movie, right? Wow. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I've seen that one. <laughs> uh, good for you. <laughs> yes. So, but then he starts. Uh, this is, I would say, is like his 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 tipping point, his flashpoint. He's in Smoking Aces as one as the, as one of the Tremor brothers. Yes, oh. I loved him in that. Yeah, Smoking Aces oh. is a is a good, terrible movie with a twist yes, that is at once unbelievable and super easy to suss out. 
Mm-hmm. It's just mm-hmm. insane. Um, but then he, this is the first movie I remember seeing him in. Bottle Shock? Did anyone see that? Oh, was that the wine movie? Yeah, that is that is the wine movie. <laughs> That's not totally obvious. Don't act like I'm an asshole. <laughs> um, yeah, it's it's based on like the time that like like the or the moment when like California wines beat all those French wines in like a taste test, and um, it's got Alan Rickman, Chris Pine, Bill Pullman. It's got uh, Dennis Farina in it in a very strange role, <laughs> and um, oh, I I thought she'd be right up top. But uh, I can't seem to find her now. Uh, she was the the woman from Dollhouse. Uh, uh, Liza Yeah, yeah. Liza. She is also in that. She plays a bartender mm-hmm. at a wine place. Anyway, so he's in Bottle Shock, and then he's in Star Trek, mm-hmm. which is two thousand nine. And then he is again just in a bunch of really weird small stuff because I guess like Star Trek hadn't, or they had all been filmed before Star Trek. And then he's in Unstoppable. Celeste and Jesse forever. This means war, which, oof. Ooh. But then Jesus. it's weird because oh, like he so he bad. still doesn't really like pop hard. Like he gets he gets parts. Obviously, you know he does Star Trek in a Darkness. He does Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, which is a movie I only just remembered seeing. But like I guess up until like recently like hell or high water really and star trek beyond and wonder woman now he's like everyone's favorite chris again i don't think he can carry a movie that's that's my personal feeling i think in an ensemble i was actually you jumped over it but i i actually uh thought the finest hours was kind of an underrated rescue film from uh, I, 2016 I, I still haven't gotten around to it i've i need to see that i've it's heard one of, really really good things so it's the one about the coast and uh Yes, Chris Pine, Casey Affleck, and Ben Foster are the three uh, main men, and Eric Bana as well. Uh, but yeah, that that was uh, pretty good, and I thought I, I really like him in period roles. Honestly, he uh, has a good period face; like he he looks good in, in like too. a fedora. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I was I was thinking, what he's in Cinderella or something, or no, he's yes. in Into the Woods as well, right? Yeah, yeah, Into the Woods, yeah, yeah, yeah. But he's, I'm not gonna. He's a lot of fun in that. I he's skipped over like horrible bosses to Into the Woods, Z for Zachariah, <laughs> because I was like, he's he's definitely in those, and those were movies, but I don't know that they count as like successes. I do love. Oh, Z for Zachariah, not worth seeing. I have never seen it. Okay. I thought I remembered hearing that it was not great. Um, okay. A movie that I will say is is super, super good, <laughs> that I'm probably the only person on earth who thinks that, is Stretch. You are the only person who thinks that. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. I, re- I remember watching that and thinking that was pretty good. Yeah, yeah. okay. Great. Yeah, I, I love that movie and I don't know why. And he has like a truly unhinged, I'm fairly certain no one's ever going to see this movie kind of role in that <laughs> Mm-hmm. That was one of the Blumhouse films because I remember hearing about it and that they tried to kind of like bury it. And then they kind of were like, eh, all right, we'll, we'll release the damn thing. And it has like some director behind it, some director or writer that was like, I guess, had made Joe a Carnahan. Still Carnahan, yeah. yeah. And yeah. so so it was like it was like, why isn't this guy's like stuff being released? And it was just like, well, because you gotta see the movie. And then you see the movie and you're like, ah, okay, I can see how they had trouble marketing that. Like, yeah, a little bit. It. Yeah. 
Because what he had done the A team and um, the Gray obviously is is a perfect Spoken movie. Aces. Narc. Yeah, he did Spoken Aces. He's mm. also doing the Raid. He's apparently remake? like him and Frank huh. Grillo. I think are trying to do like a Raid remake, which I'm I'm fine uh, with. Yeah, no, that, no, I'm good with that. <laughs> <laughs> and then Denzel Washington around around this same time, like you know, like Bill had said, you know, he's he's he is a consistently working actor. Sure. And he had been in so Fences this, is good. That was recent. Oh, I was I was not not this time. The contemporaneous no. with the release of Unstoppable. Oh, right. <laughs> he had done clearly obviously he like like I can't I want to go back in time and like find the last like bad movie he made, but they're all so good. Um The Book of Eli? I liked the Book of Eli. Oh God, Brian. <laughs> I know, I know. It's 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 a it's a super dumb movie. It's kind of like weirdly pointless, but like I thought I like some of the uh the visuals in it. Anyway, it's not a great movie. <laughs> but like if someone said, "Hey man, I think I'm going to watch The Book of Eli. You want to stick around?" I'd be like, "Yeah, I got nowhere to go." <laughs> anyway, so that's my very strong <laughs> statement about how good Book of Eli is. But like, yeah, he does Inside Man. Um, he does mm. Deja Vu, which is, you know, Tony Scott. He does American Gangster, The Great Debaters, Taking a Pelham, One, Two, Three, Tony Scott again. And then The Book of Eli and Unstoppable came out in the same year. And then, uh, he takes a two year break and he does Safe House and Flight. I still never finished that. <laughs> you never finished Flight? House? No, I gave up an hour in. <laughs> oh, man. Both of those are really good movies. <laughs> that, that is. I couldn't handle the the uh, needle drops. <laughs> I just couldn't do flight, it. That's why we have the flight <laughs> I award. Know, but I couldn't do it. <laughs> best needle drops. <laughs> there was that's like the that's the one. So like that was back when Danny, Nick, and I were on this podcast, mm-hmm. and we would like constantly have like very different opinions. But for some reason, all three of us fucking loved flight. <laughs> And so we just like would never fail to bring up how awesome Flight was. And like my brother and I saw Flight together after like a night of partying extremely hard and being super hungover. And we left and we went to the Chick-fil-A across from the movie theater. And I was just like, you know, Kevin, I think I think we're both gonna die of these hangovers. I think we have to whip Whitaker this situation and just start drinking again. And it became an in-joke where it's like, what are we going to do, Kevin? And he's like, I don't know. I think we're going to have to whip Whitaker this situation. It's like, what would whip Whitaker do? Is that the the best character name in a movie since Morph? Uh, oh, God, I can't remember <laughs> Morph, the last name. Like Vanderwerf? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whip Morph Whitaker Vanderwerf is a great guy. Whip Whitaker. <laughs> and what was it Hi. Wade collateral or something <laughs> Wade. oh my god yes but so all that is to say that like this movie i i think it's interesting to think about the fact that this is tony scott's final film mm-hmm. because like yeah. given you know given his work with denzel washington which again like he had done so much stuff with him by this point you know they'd done crimson tide they'd done uh man on fire and then Deja Vu, and then the Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, and then Unstoppable. It really seemed like he was turning him into his guy. Mm-hmm. And I wonder... It's, it's, it's interesting because 
listening to some of that behind the scenes stuff, they had an interview with, with, um, Denzel and like, it wasn't, he didn't make it sound like he got the script from Tony and was basically like, Oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm just going to automatically say yes. It was like, Tony came to him and had like a bunch of research and had like, and they sat down and talked about it, like what they wanted to do, what he wanted to happen. And by the end of it, he had like all of this knowledge of like how it was going to be shot and everything like that. And he was just like, yeah, you know, it's, it's hard to say no to, to Tony when he's got that kind of role going. And it, it made it sound like he still, like put in the effort to sell Denzel on like making this movie. It wasn't just like, Hey, you're in my movie, you know? Cause <laughs> right. I mean, I, I imagine he could have just called Denzel up and been like, Hey, I'm going to make a movie about like this unstoppable train. You want to be in it? And Denzel probably would have been like, of course, like why wouldn't I say yes to this? I think it's curious. Nope. I, I wonder if I wonder if like that's why they kept working together because uh, it seems like that's the type of thing that Tony Scott would like probably do with every role in every movie mm-hmm. is be like like let me find the the technical aspects that I love about this and like the human aspects and then let me bring it to the guy who I know can pull it off. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And like you know because I imagine like Man on Fire, you know. To hear it, it's like, hey, you're going to play like a really screwed up guy who's a bodyguard and then his kid gets taken and he goes on like bloody rampage. And like, I imagine, you know, maybe this is just my super elevated opinion of Denzel Washington that he initially would be like, I don't know about that. (laughs) It doesn't feel like me. But it's like, let me tell you, you fall in love with this girl like she is your own daughter. And you have to like expiate your guilt and everything by going and finding these people and you know, getting revenge and he's like oh okay yeah no i get that i feel that like i he denzel washington in every movie he's in it never feels like he's attempting to be like simple you know like we can say like i love liam neeson taken isn't really stretching his uh his acting muscles you know no but I mean, denzel washington in everything that, feels like he's given it his all that's that, partly though that is who he's working for though as yeah. well like like the directors behind that like like i mean because taken is uh the the europa guys right yeah uh, one of them absolutely um and and so you know i think i think maybe taken just fails at being that kind of elevated action film beyond just being like a fun like action romp right because like, like, they're th- utterly this, uninterested <laughs> yeah th- this is this is the difference between something that you see on the average you know olympus has fallen or something like that versus a john wick where you feel like there's some personality behind the film and the filmmaker and like some intentionality behind the characters and so yeah i think i think denzel is always going to play in that kind of field and he's gonna he's gonna do his best to make sure that he's showing up for that film. Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's, there's a few actors out there that are like that. Um, but no, now I'm, I'm just really fucking curious if he does any of his own stunts, because that would, that would really kind of sell me on, on, on him. It really, I mean, like I've never seen the equalizer just because I don't know. It, it's one of those movies that like, it comes out and I'm like, okay, I'll catch that when it's on like Netflix. 
Mm-hmm. You know, and I, <clears throat> if a movie doesn't like stream and I didn't catch it in the first place, yeah, it's very rare for me to like rent a movie because I sort of, for whatever reason, hate renting movies off of like Amazon and iTunes. Mm-hmm. Like I used to go to Blockbuster and get like five DVDs at a time. Sure, sure. And you were and able even, to keep even them. when even when like Netflix was was doing the the mail thing, and I I think they still do it. But yeah, they still do like, it. Yeah, but it, it was it was one of those things where you're like, all right, I'll put that in my queue. And it's like, okay. And then it shows up and you're like, oh, cool. Yeah, I'll, I'll watch this. And then you just don't. Cause... Netflix for me <laughs> with the discs was like, these are the movies that I know I need to watch. So it helped me catch up on like the canon and a bunch of the old stuff. Mm-hmm. But Blockbuster was like, I, I know that I'm going to have like five free hours this weekend between getting trashed and like it, it, it was doing it homework. was shiny. It was the shiny cover syndrome like that. That was Blockbuster. That was the beauty yeah. of it. And that's why they didn't turn, you know, it, it, it was just like, you know, if you go to a bookstore or something like that and it's like, you know, a lot of times they'll just turn the spines out. But every now and then they'll turn one you know, of those covers and they'll show you the cover of it. And mm. it's like, Ooh, what, what is that? Oh, look, vampires. Oh, okay. <laughs> All right. Machine guns. Huh? Interesting. All Wait, right. Vampires oh. and machine guns on the same book. Or are you talking about two different books? Uh, no, I'm talking about the same movie. Um, I'm talking about <laughs> underworld, baby. Oh, uh, that's but true. Yeah. Uh. I mean, you know, it's one of those things where you're just like, and that was back in the day when like, that was kind of, their VHS and DVD was really the secondary market of like how some of these films could get sold and make money. Mm -hmm. And so they put a lot of effort and energy. It felt like at least back then in my adolescent kind of mind that they put a lot of effort and energy into like making a visually appealing like cover and like trying to sell you the movie right there on the cover. Well, how many, how many poor people strolling through a blockbuster got conned into watching that Jack Frost serial killer movie with the Uh, holographic cover? Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, it, it's sort of of a time, you know, like this movie is of that same time where it's like this movie, they got $90 million to make it. Wow. And, um, and again, they, they didn't like try to make it like an awards contender, like a Sully or like, you know, a, I guess was Deepwater Horizon an awards grab or was that just like a mm. but what about Patriots Day those movies are so jumbled but like they definitely are feeding off of like a kind of patriotic like rah rah yes sure but this movie was like I want to be fun first but I also don't want to be empty calories mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and like I just you know it's like a cliche to say it and I'm sure someone on Twitter will like tweet me 20 examples of how I'm wrong but like I don't feel like they make this kind of movie that much anymore it's it's more rare for this kind of big budget without kind of anything kind of behind it, you know, um, any intention behind it. And like that's that's what I was gunning, yeah saying about Tony of, Scott is like none of, we, we none lost of him and I don't know who has moved in to sort of take his place because yeah. he operated such a specific level of like hyper masculine like adrenaline pumping action, but that also like earnestly cared about creating like characters that you'd love. And, and we're just fun. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. It's tough. It's tough to find that balance these days. So, 
Hopefully Netflix uh, will fill that void. <laughs> well, what's funny is that um, when I watched The Grey, one of the reasons that I really loved it was because it, it felt like that. Mm-hmm. But like mm-hmm. even with an added layer of like deeper sadness and like, you know, more emotion. And it was just like, this is like what I used to get out of my Tony Scott films. Like these are, this is like, you can watch this and just love like the man versus wild aspect. But like, if you're willing to feel all the things that the movie wants you to feel, it can be so much more. And like, you could watch this movie and never think about like its statements against like the capitalist machinery that turns people into like collateral damage against the stock option or like the way that Connie is a woman of color. Who's like being, you know, just belittled on all ends by white men or like the way that, uh, like it, it again it talks like very obliquely about like the continuing plight of like the working american veteran and stuff you could watch this and just be like this movie fucking rules because it's awesome mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's so great and i'm trying to see what else i have here on my list i don't want to i don't want to miss anything um what we've talked about it's a high stakes movie but with stakes that are low and realistic mm-hmm. like yep. you feel yeah, the it's- stakes for these people it's yep. I, I was struck by watching it this time around how quickly the the kind of film wraps up like once once Chris Pine kind of makes that heroic leap onto the train like at that point the the film literally starts to ramp down like like it's like oh he's on the train and we're done Michael and this just- could be at last. The moment where you actually get to say that the construction of the movie is meant to say something about the plot itself. <laughs> nah, I, I don't think so. <laughs> Except that this movie rules. Yeah. But yeah, you know, you're right. He get, he gets in. You don't even really see him entering the train. Like, you see everyone else just being like, oh, he did it. Like, we're going to be okay now. And then, like, it cuts to, like, the speedometer mm-hmm. going down. And then suddenly there's, like, an impromptu conference. And his wife is yeah. there. And you can tell that, like they're going to work it out which is good i think that it's also interesting that the movie can have him be such like a massive asshole in that moment but like you honestly believe and i think again this is a credit to like pine and his acting during that scene that like he knows he made a mistake and like he knows that he was an idiot and that like he he isn't just like if only i could make her understand he's just like no i was a i was an idiot i wasn't like and denzel isn't going to be like Oh, she'll forgive you. Don't worry about it. He's like, no, you have to keep calling. Like, you can't. It's don't you know how this works? Like, you made the mistake and you have to fix it. And it's up to her to accept that. But you have to keep giving her the option. Mm -hmm. And, um, oh, (laughs) I just love that when Ned bursts onto the scene at the end in his red pickup, (laughs) Ride of the Valkyries plays because it's his ringtone and we heard it earlier in the movie. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that's so mm-hmm. good oh man so yeah i'm I'm glad michael that we we talked you into walk, watching this movie and then <laughs> what was your statement it was just out of the blue so unstoppable kicks ass mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. that was that was a great message to read on uh on the good old slack so <laughs> I had to apprise you as soon as as soon as I I knew that. <laughs> yeah, I was like, that's how I know this is going to be a great episode. I think that um, Tony Scott is such an interesting person just to go through his entire his entire filmography because he starts off with such a clear style of like 
sweaty guys lit by like <laughs> lit by the lights of their machinery and like you know and then he gets weirdly frenetic like man on fire does it domino takes it over the edge deja vu keeps it i think unstoppable shows that he'd kind of like gotten it under control mm-hmm. sure the the opening sequences of this kind of show showcase that a little mm-hmm. bit i was i was struck by it because i was like I, I was streaming it and i was like oh what the fuck is my internet and then i was like i was like hold on this is an artistic choice okay okay all right yeah yeah <laughs> yeah because it'll do that kind of thing where it almost seems like the image has been burned into the screen sure mm-hmm. and like there'll be like little white flashes and everything and um i don't know i remember seeing that in man on fire and just being like this is such an interesting choice and like i it still blows my mind like how is that edited like what do you tell your editor in the room like so at this point take i really frames like frames out Really like some flashbulb type of, you know, stuttering, like, Mm -hmm. God, like it's, he's just, he, he really was like just such a great director. And like, this is like a minor movie of his to go out on, but like, it just still shows a guy who's like at the height of his goddamn powers and is, is operating in like a popular genre with such, like we've said, like humanism and care and construction and attention to detail that like whenever whenever people are like you know oh like it's like a tony scott film like you don't understand that that is meant to be a compliment like you can't throw that at the taken movies you know as sure. much as i enjoyed like the first taken like that's not a tony scott film yeah that's a that's a film that like you know it, it's it's liam neeson that makes that movie yeah I, I don't think i haven't watched that movie in a bit i have a feeling it would not age super well <laughs> No, and I think that I think that Tony Scott, like like Billy, like what you were saying, like I think that he knew who he needed for this and he knew how he needed to approach them to get it. And I feel like you know, I just don't feel like he would have made this movie if he didn't get the person that he felt was best for the role. Mm-hmm. Um according to the Wikipedia for this film, this was originally going to be directed by Martin Campbell. Wow. Really? Yeah. I can I can see that. I can see that. I can huh. see that. But in the kind of boring way that we keep talking about, the way that Tony Scott has like sub- sure. like circumvented that pitfall. I mean, I, I don't think you're giving Campbell enough credit. He's He's got some shit on his list for sure, but he also has Casino Royale on his list as well. And so. that's – And that's and super and golden eye. Right, yeah. and that's like, super fair, but like I just feel like – I don't know if Martin Campbell would have like, you know, done all the work, you know, like Tony seems sure. to have done. And I don't know. I think that Martin Campbell would have made a like a perfectly fine and serviceable action movie. Mm-hmm. I don't know that he would have brought anything extra to it in the way that you can kind of feel Tony Scott bringing it here. Sure. sure. It's it's the difference between like what makes, you know, a good film and a serviceable film and like a film like Unstoppable, which is compulsively watchable. And has so many different little tidbits and things to like latch on to. Like I feel like in in a in a Martin Campbell version of this movie, like Ned would be like fine, but he wouldn't be fucking Ned, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think sure. Tony gives us Ned with his ponytail and his leather duster. Yeah. And apparently he keeps a suit in his car, because he is fully suited up at the press conference. <laughs> this would have been right after a casino. This was 
2007 no sorry what year is this from uh this is 2010 um in june of 20 of 2007 uh 20th century fox was negotiating with martin campbell for this um he was attached as director until march of 2009 so then he did edge of darkness and green lantern (laughs) oof oh boy yeah Oh, man. So, yeah, I could talk about this movie for another three hours, but uh, clearly, you know, at some point we have to stop. Uh, is there anything that we haven't touched on? Any, like, favorite scenes or moments or anything else that we can say about this movie? Nah, I don't think so. Okay, I want to do one last thing, and this is this is just purely because I'm never going to have another chance to talk about this. Um, we've all seen Man on Fire, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it's been a while. Did you realize that, like... Man on Fire, there's the the club scene where he's like in the club in Mexico with the shotgun and um, they do a remix of like a Requiem for a Dream song in that scene. And then in this movie, that is the song that is playing every time it cuts back to the Hooters. Are you serious? (laughs) Yeah. Um, I have a clip. Allow me to play it. Okay. So yeah, I um I just love the fact that Tony Scott apparently heard that song somewhere and was just like, you know what? (laughs) I feel like uh, mixed it. He just—he was just like, yeah, let's put it in Man on Fire. You know what? I need something for Unstoppable. Yeah, let's just do it again. <laughs> That's wild. That's wild. It's like how it's, and it reminds me of how Michael Mann like got into Paul Oakenfold for like two movies in a row <laughs> <laughs> for like Collateral and Miami Vice. He was just like Paul Oakenfold. That's my guy. <laughs> Does Starry-eyed Surprise show up in either of them? <laughs> mm, sadly, I don't think so. But yeah, anyway, like I said, that's that's I needed to expiate that for my spirit because I've been walking around with that since I've seen both of these movies. I'm just like, why that specific song? And who who decided to sample Requiem for a Dream for a techno remix of the Requiem for a Dream anthem? You'll never know. Anyway, that is Juice by GMS. So I guess you will know. <laughs> I mean, I could look it up, but I just I prefer to live with like the idea that that person never actually saw Requiem for a Dream and they only saw the trailer for the Two Towers. <laughs> but no, they had to have seen it. They used the goddamn words from the movie. Anyway, doesn't matter. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> let's uh let's wrap it yeah. up. Do we um? Oh, we're we're talking about a Battle Angel or Alita Battle Angel this coming weekend, are we not? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So you can look forward to that fresh new review uh, this coming weekend. We hope you've enjoyed this classic review. Our next uh, movie will be something, you know, a little more arty and highbrow and older, I guess, before we come right back to Tony Scott to talk about Crimson Tide. What if that's just what we do? Maybe that's how we negotiate this with ourselves. It's like, all right, we'll watch one like three hour Lithuanian film and then we'll do Man on Fire. <laughs> all right bill you good with that 
Uh, I need to get to Crimson Tide. Let's do Crimson Tide next. Bill, you need to watch Crimson Tide just on your own, uh, just because you love yourself and you want to do you yourself a favor. A you gotta give me a reason. I'll give you $12? I don't know. <laughs> Wait, I, I haven't seen Crimson Tide. Give me $12. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Is this yes, how this is working? <laughs> I'm just gonna buy Crimson Tide and then I'll give you access to my, like, movie streaming account or whatever it is there you go all right anyway so yes um we're gonna we're gonna talk about alita battle angel on our next episode we will have another classic episode coming soon hopefully um no idea what it will be we've we've tossed around a couple names i don't want to throw any out there and get people excited if we don't end up doing them so just come back whenever we drop it and uh and enjoy did you know that Unstoppable was nominated for Best Sound Editing? I did. It lost to Inception. Well. Why have we not been saying Oscar-nominated Unstoppable? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it it lost to Inception, so more reasons that the Oscars are bad. Yeah. Which reminds us. Yeah, that was... Stagies. (laughs) Oh, that's right. I thought we were just going to shit-talk the Oscars for ten minutes. Yeah. Uh, The the Stagies are back. And um, you know, as we said, it's got a it's got an awards category, the flight award for most on the nose needle drop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you want to become a part of the only awards ceremony left this year, which will be airing all of its awards ceremony in its entirety <laughs> as it goes on, go and vote for the stages. Uh we're gonna pin the tweet to the top of our Twitter feed at Film Stage Show. Uh check the notes for this episode. You will also see the link there. And um yeah, you can help us decide on what films from last year to award for some of the only categories that truly matter, like the man's best friend for best benevolent animal. And um of course the why are they talking like that award for worst accent. Yeah. Yeah. So check that out. Again, find us online at Film Stage Show, Facebook, The Film Stage Show. Go to patreon.com slash Film Stage Show. Become a patron to help us produce more great content like what you just listened to. And of course, we're brought to you by Mubi, where every day their curators introduce a brand new film for you to enjoy. You have 30 days to watch. As I said, their Berlin Al and Sundance Takeover series is happening right now. And um, I'm trying to... Oh, there. What is an auteur series focused on uh, Catherine Bigelow is just about to wrap up in the next couple days. So if you'd like to see Near Dark and Blue Steel, go to mubi.com slash filmstage right now for your free 30-day trial. Again, that is mubi.com slash filmstage. And that is it for today. We hope you've enjoyed listening to us just fall in love all over again with Tony Scott and Unstoppable. And, um... Yeah. But not each other, apparently. No, why would we do that? <laughs> None of you were damn Yeah, that'd make <laughs> bad podcast, obviously. <laughs> Speaking of oh. not liking people, I was gonna I was going to catch up on Robert Rodriguez's recent filmmaking. And then <laughs> it's a bunch of kids' movies, including one called Shorts, which I wanted to die. But then I was gonna watch oh I was like, oh, I'll watch Once Upon a Time in Mexico. And then I realized that speaking of people who were canceled, Johnny Depp is in that as himself, apparently. Wait, he is? Yeah. What? Or some CIA no. handler? Uh, uh, mm. <laughs> I, haven't, 
It's been a long time since I've seen once. Wait, wait. Okay, so there's El Mariachi. There's Desperado. Yeah, and that's right. And then Once Upon a Time in Mexico was the 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 third in that whatever trilogy, yes. right? Yes. Yeah. And he's blind. I remember that. Yeah, he becomes what? blinded, right? He becomes blinded. Yeah. Spoilers. <laughs> oh, oh, I right. thought you had Oops. already seen it. It's a no. He said he hadn't seen it. Wow. Johnny Depp is playing Sands. Yeah, never mind. I'm not watching that movie anymore. (laughs) Why did you think he was playing himself? I don't know. What a weird man you are. (laughs) Anyway, so yes. uh, Inexplicable. (laughs) We'll all be coming into uh, Alita Battle Angel having only seen, I'm going to make a wild guess. Sin City last. (laughs) Sin City, is that our last one for him? I've seen Machete. Oh, oh yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. I've, I've seen both both Machete series. I've actually interviewed Robert Rodriguez for Machete, so yeah, that was fun. Nice. Wait Anyways, a second. Hold on. Need to get out of here. I'm so sorry. Oh, he has no. a movie called A Hundred Years that's coming out in 2115. No, I think it's. I don't. I, I saw that, but I didn't want to look up what it actually was. <laughs> it's starring John Malkovich. No, I know. I'm sure it's some ad thing. No, it does look like it's an ad. Yeah, okay. It's for I think it's for Remy Martin. Anyway, wow. it's just like it's got John Malkovich looking John Malkovich like, and it says 100 years, the movie you will never see. Yeah, which is real fucking it, dark to tell a bunch of people, remind them of their mortality. Anyway, let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found wait. between now. It is due to be released on November 8th, 2115, matching the 100 years it takes for a bottle of Louis XIII cognac to be released to consumers. <laughs> I mean, that's a good gimmick, but... <laughs> is it? Like, what? Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, it's, like it's a, a good gimmick. It's like a time like, capsule, it, you know? Yeah, this is 100 years old. Like, that's pretty cool. 100-year-old cognac. Is a, a, Martin, a cognac or a brandy? Uh, da, 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 doesn't matter it's, 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 it's Remy Martin cognac okay yeah. great alright so again trying this again let's tell the fine people at home where we can be found between now and the next time Bill Graham uh, you can definitely find me not getting on any trains or uh, trying to cross train tracks as fast as I can on twitter at cablebfg and also on the Slack channel. All right. Yep. Michael Snydell. You can find me pondering my mortality because of uh, alcohol uh, on Twitter at, at Snydell. And uh, still haven't written anything on Letterboxd, but maybe soon. Uh, also Slack. <laughs> the way you phrased that, it made it seem like your mortality was brought about by the alcohol. I mean, also that's really wrong. <laughs> Alright, you can find me on Twitter ranting about a missile the size of the Chrysler building <laughs> at Brian J. Rowan. Jackpot. Yeah. You can find me uh, really everywhere at Brian J. Rowan, so uh, don't hesitate. Find me on all of the social medias and become my like societally ordained stalker. Anyway, uh, so yes, again, all at Brian J. Rowan. Find everything that we write for the film stage at filmstage.com. That is also where you can find every episode of this show that has ever been produced. 
And, uh, yeah, that's all. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for joining us, and tune in next time. Thank you.